this morning, we're going to be looking at a few verses in the book of Romans. So if you want to open up your Bibles there, open up to to Romans, just as you're turning there, a little background on that book. Romans is sometimes referred to as the greatest letter ever written. Now, if we want to get, you know, real hard-nosed and theological, maybe we can uh, argue that there are 20 other letters that are just as inspired and are just as much the Word of God as Romans. But there's a reason that Romans is called the greatest letter, and that's because it's the longest of our New Testament epistles. The only, the only other book that has as many chapters in terms of the epistles in the New Testament is, is 1 Corinthians. But Romans is 16 chapters, and what we see in Romans is of all of the the epistles of the New Testament, it is the one that is most clearly a a kind of systematic theology. It's the one that most, most closely approaches being a theological treatise, at least that's the case for the first 11 chapters of Romans, because in the first 11 chapters of Romans, what you get is you get a, a very clear reasoned argument, an explanation of the biblical understanding, the biblical doctrine of soteriology, the biblical understanding of salvation. So for the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, is explaining exactly what the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ is. And for 11 chapters, he spells that out. But then there's a shift in chapter 12. Once we hit chapter 12 of Romans, Paul changes gears. Those first 11 chapters are this kind of systematic theology, and then the next, what is it, eight chapters? Someone help me with math, but the next, that's not, that's not right, it's not eight, it's five. Anyway, um, the rest of the book, uh, the rest of the book is application. So what Paul does in Romans is he moves from what we might call the indicative in those first 11 chapters, indicative meaning statements of fact about the way that things are, to what we would call the imperative. Imperative meaning what we should do in light of those facts. He moves from theology to application. And that happens at the beginning of chapter 12. So these verses that we're gonna look at today Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, they are in many ways the linchpin verses of the book of Romans. They are the verses that hold those first 11 chapters of theology to those next five chapters of application. And so, what we see in these verses, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, is we see this call, this clear call from Paul, from God through Paul, this clear call for us to live transformed lives. For us to live transformed lives, only in those verses, Paul doesn't simply say that we should live transformed lives, he explains exactly what the transformed life is. He explains what it looks like, what drives it, and how we can live it. So, This morning, what I want to do is, based on those two verses, I want us to look at three key aspects of the transformed life. Maybe a better way to say it is I want us to answer three key questions about the transformed life. So let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then we'll look to those three big questions about the transformed life. Romans 12, starting in verse 1, it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. So there it is, that's the call to live a transformed life. And the first question that I wanna ask and answer is this, why? Why should we live these transformed lives? What is it that motivates the transformed life of the believer? The answer comes at the very beginning of verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Why do we live the transformed life? We live the transformed life because we are motivated by the mercies of God. We're motivated by the mercies of God. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Everything that he's about to say, everything that we're gonna cover this morning, everything in those next two verses is on the basis of the mercies of God. That's the basis by which Paul is making this appeal. That is what motivates the transformed life is the mercies of God. And there's a key word in there. He says, I appeal to you, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, and, and if you learned as a kid the same thing that I did, then you know the very first rule of biblical interpretation is this. When you see a therefore, what's the question you ask? What is it there for? When you see a therefore, you ask, what is it there for? I remember when I was a kid in Sunday school and I heard that for the first time and it stuck in my head and I remember as a kid going through, not even reading the Bible, just circling all of the therefores. Now, that's not great Bible study, but that's what I did when I was in probably fifth grade. But it, it is an important, an important tool, an important rule that when we see a therefore, we ask what it's there for because therefore, it is a, a, uh, a conjunctive adverb. That's what that word's called. I don't know that. I had to look that up. I'm not that smart. But um, it's called a conjunctive adverb. And what it does is it points back to something that's come before. Right? It points back to something that's come before. So Paul is saying, I appeal to you, therefore. So in light of what I've already said, now I'm making this appeal that you do these things on the basis of the mercies of God. So if we want to know what those mercies of God that Paul has in view in his argument are, if we want to know what he means by the mercies of God, what the basis for the transformed life is, that therefore points us backward in the text. And usually when you're reading through scripture and you see that therefore, it's a good idea to back up to the paragraph before, see what the, the thought that is being completed here is. And here in Romans chapter 12, if we go back to the paragraph before the end of chapter 11, we see that chapter 11 ends in this kind of doxology where Paul says this, starting in verse 33, he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. So we take that therefore and we look at, at the, the paragraph that's come before, the kind of last thought before Paul makes this, um, this plea, this exhortation, this appeal. And we see this doxology, we see this, this picture of the riches and the wisdom and, and the knowledge and the authority of God. But that's not the basis for Paul's appeal, is it? He doesn't say, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the wisdom of God or by the, the knowledge of God. He doesn't say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the authority of God. No, he appeals by the mercies of God. 
And so what are those mercies? Well, I told you that these verses are the linchpin verses of the book of Romans. See, this therefore doesn't just point back to the last few verses of chapter 11. It doesn't even point back just to the whole chapter 11. No, this therefore points back to everything that has been said in the book of Romans up to this point. It points back to the first 11 chapters of the book because in those 11 chapters, Paul has laid out the manifold mercies of God towards his people. He has shown exactly how incredibly, powerfully, magnificently merciful God has been to his people. And so what are those mercies? Let's look back to the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. If we start in chapter one of Romans, in chapters one through three, Paul starts by painting a picture of mankind, of the depravity, the sinfulness, the wickedness of humanity. Before talking about the mercies of God, he spends time talking about why mankind needs mercy. And so we see this in Romans chapter one and verse 22, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Jumping down to verse 29, it says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, but they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them by putting a rainbow on their profile picture. This is the state of mankind. In chapter two, we see this. We see that because of this sin, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. Then in chapter three, what we see is that this sinfulness, this wickedness that describes mankind, this applies to every single one of us. In Romans 3.10, it says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, for no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. So for the first two and a half chapters of Romans, Paul shows us exactly what mankind is. He paints this powerful picture of the depths of our depravity, of of the depths of our wickedness, of the depths of our sin. But then a shift happens in the second half of Romans chapter three. A shift happens in the second half of Romans chapter three and the mercies of God begin to be introduced into the story. Because what Paul has shown us about the depths of our depravity are going to serve to give us a clearer view of the heights of the mercies of God. 
So that shift in Romans 3, it happens at verse 21 when we see this. In light of all of this, in light of the wickedness of man, we see this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The mercies of God have been introduced. The grace of God has come into the story that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified by his grace as a gift. We are made right with God, legally righteous before the eyes of God by his grace, not by our own merit. And that justification is a huge piece of the mercies of God, but that's not all, because we're only in chapter three. And as Paul continues, he starts to to spell out all of the manifold mercies of God. In chapter four, what we see is that our faith is counted to us as righteousness. We're not simply having our our slate wiped clean and, and God's returning us to a state of absolute zero, no. Our faith is counted to us as righteousness. We have the the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. In chapter five, we see that while we are reconciled to God by Christ's death, we are given new life by his resurrection. In chapter six, we see that we're not only freed from the punishment of our sins, but we're freed from the power of our sins. We're freed from bondage to sin, from slavery to sin. In chapter seven, we see that we are now, because of the mercies of God, no longer under the righteous requirement of the law. In chapter eight, we see that we are adopted into the family of God. That we are called brothers of Christ, co-heirs with Christ of his heavenly reward. In chapter nine, we see that all of this is God's work. It is not ours at all. It does not depend on us or on our righteousness, but it depends on him who calls us. In chapter 10, we see that these blessings are available to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, we see that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises to his undeserving people, and he will continue to keep his promises to his people. So when Paul is making this appeal on the mercies of God, he's not just appealing on the mercy of God to to not smite us in our sin. He's not just appealing to to the mercy of God to to wipe our, our slate clean. He's appealing to all of these mercies. I feel like sometimes when we when we think about the mercies of God, we we think about God being stingy with his mercy. I mean, any one of these mercies that I just listed, coming from a holy and righteous God to an unrighteous, evil mankind, any one of those mercies on its own would be unfathomably merciful. But God doesn't stop with one. He's not stingy with his mercy. He heaps these mercies onto his people. He lavishes his people with mercy. He's not stingy with it. I think think we, we tend to think of mercy like when my kids ask me for chocolate milk. They ask me for chocolate milk and usually the answer is no, right? You don't need that much sugar. Um, But sometimes the answer is yes. But even when I tell my kids yes, 
Even when I show them mercy and I give them chocolate milk, I get the glass of milk and I, I pour the chocolate syrup into it and I kind of stir it around and I put just enough in that like it kind of changes the color of the milk a little bit, right? It's not even really brown. It's kind of like that purpley brown that you, you know what I'm talking about? And so, so I give my kids this little glass of this purpley brownish white chocolate milk and it's sweet but it's nothing spectacular, right? It's sweet, but I've been stingy with that sweetness. That's how we think of, that's how we think of the mercies of God. We go, yeah, he, he forgives us, but do we actually see the depths of that forgiveness? How he lavishes it on his people? The depths of that mercy? It's not, it's not a weak little glass of chocolate milk. It's, it's the chocolate lava cake. You know, when you get the, the cake and it's that moist, dense chocolate cake and it's got like hot fudge drizzled on top and then you cut into the thing and this like molten chocolate stew comes out of it. It's better than I just made it sound, but you, you take a bite of that and it's so rich and so sweet and so, so decadent and you, you, you can barely even stand the richness of it, Right? God's mercy is not weak Nesquik, it's chocolate lava cake. He has lavished his mercies upon his people. He has given us more than we could ever expect or ask or hope for or even comprehend. And it is that mercy that motivates the transformed life. The mercies of God in Romans, the mercies that Paul has spelled out, the mercy of justification, of new life, of freedom from bondage to sin, freedom from the impossible demands of self-wrought righteousness, the mercy of being adopted into the family of God, the mercy of God's sovereign calling of his people, the mercy of his faithfulness to his people, the offer of salvation to all who call on him, both Jew and Gentile. Those are the mercies of God that motivate the transformed life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, on the mercies of God. So if that's what motivates it, then what is it? What does it look like? What is the transformed life? What is its character? What does it consist of? Well, we have the answer in the rest of verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is the transformed life? It is a life that is sacrificially surrendered to God. Transformed life is a life that is sacrificially surrendered to God. Now, that language of sacrifice is interesting. And it's interesting because when we see that, we need to ask, what is this sacrifice for? Normally, when we think of of scripture and we think of sacrifice, We probably go to to the Old Testament and we think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Or maybe we think to the, the fulfillment, the culmination of that sacrificial system in the sacrifice of Christ. We think of the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of mankind, the sins of his people. But here we are called to make sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that sacrifice isn't for sin. That sacrifice can't be for sin. Why? Because our sin has already been paid for. That sacrifice has already been made. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, we see this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Our sacrifices now are not sacrifices for sin because our sin has been paid for. It's been paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. So now this sacrifice that we are called to make, offering ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, is not as payment for our sin. It's not a propitiatory sacrifice. So then what is it? It's a sacrifice of worship. It is a sacrifice of worship. We are to offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice a sacrifice of worship, an ongoing act of adoration of God. An ongoing act of adoration of God. This sacrifice is not for our sins, but it is an act of worship, an act of adoration. And what exactly is being sacrificed? What exactly is being sacrificed? Well, the text is plain, although sometimes we try to read our way out of it. What does he say? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to offer or present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Often when we read that, we go, well, I know it says bodies, but what he's really talking about here, what he's really talking about is is to offer your whole selves. But if he wanted to say that, he, he could have said that. That's not what he said. He said to present, to offer your bodies as sacrifice. It doesn't say our whole selves because the call here is a specific call for bodily, physical sacrifice. Now, when I say physical sacrifice, let's be clear. This is not the same as the sacrifice of the Old Testament, right? Because those Old Testament sacrifices, while they were physical, they were sacrifices of not your own body, but someone else's, namely a a sheep or a goat, right? And those were not living sacrifices, they were dying sacrifices. So when I say that this sacrifice is bodily, that it is a a physical, embodied sacrifice, I'm not saying that like you need to lay down up here on our pulpit or altar or whatever this is and, uh, and die. No. No, the call here is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We are to give our physical lives to the service of righteousness. I think Paul provides some clarity on what this looks like back in Romans chapter 6. So if you want to turn to Romans 6, 13, Paul says this there. He says, do not present your members to sin. Your members, that's your, that is your body. That's your, your physical form. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, our, our bodies, our physical life, can be used in the service of God or the service of sin. We can use our our physical bodies in the service of God or we can use it in the service of sin. And what Paul is saying here is in light of the spiritual mercies of God, 
in light of the mercies that God has lavished on you, in light of the spiritual life that he has bestowed on you in Christ Jesus, now you are to surrender your physical life to serving him in holiness. To offer your physical body as a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. To give your physical life to serving him in holiness. What does that mean? It means giving our time, our efforts, our energies, our skills, our labor, our lives to be surrendered entirely to him. It means serving him with what we do. Serving him with what we consume, serving him with what we say, serving him with what we watch, serving him with what we listen to, serving him with our physical lives. Every aspect of our bodily lives is to be devoted to the service of him. That's what it is to offer our bodies as living sacrifice to God. Now does that mean then that this sacrifice is only supposed to be the sacrifice of our body? Does it mean that the transformed life is one that only serves God bodily and spiritually is off serving everything else? No, not at all. Of course not, for one, because that's impossible. Two, because of this, it says that the physical body the service of him in our physical body, it is a spiritual reality. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This physical bodily surrender of our earthly lives is itself spiritual worship. The two are not separated. So Paul doesn't say, offer your whole self, which is your spiritual worship. He says offer your body because there is a physical component of this, but in offering our bodies, in offering our physical lives, we are participating in the spiritual worship of God. Jesus says this, maybe a little more simply, in John chapter 14 when he says this, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Why? Because obedience to his commandments is a profession, a demonstration of love of him. Because offering our physical lives, what we do, offering that to him as sacrifice is our spiritual worship. Offering our physical lives to the service of him in holiness is our spiritual worship. We can't say that we worship God in our spirits if we don't surrender our bodies to him in holiness because that surrendering is our spiritual worship. We can't say that we worship God, that we come here on Sunday morning and that we sing the songs and we just love worshiping God if we turn around on Monday and we don't offer our lives to him as sacrifice. The two are linked inextricably. But all this is easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's easy to say that we will surrender our bodies to him, that we will surrender our lives to him in holiness. But it's a lot harder to do than it is to say. It's one thing to say we'll surrender to him, but flesh 
the flesh is weak and holiness is hard. Once again, Paul talks about this reality in Romans chapter 7 and 721 when he says this, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my members, in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, the transformed life is a life that is motivated by the mercies of God that he has lavished on his people. It is a life of total sacrificial surrender, given entirely over to God, a life devoted to him in holiness, that we might present our lives, our bodies, our actions as as holy and acceptable sacrifice to him on the basis of what Jesus has done. But how do we actually do that? How do we actually live that transformed life? If that's what it is, then then how can I do that? How can I really genuinely be committed to offering myself as a sacrifice day in and day out to the glory of God? How can I sacrifice myself in holiness to him every single day? How do we live the transformed life? And the answer comes to us in verse two. When Paul says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the only way that we can live this transformed life is if our minds are renewed. And not just once, but if our minds are regularly renewed. Our bodies can't be surrendered to God in obedience if our minds are not first renewed by him. Because it's by the renewal of the mind that we discern what the will of God is. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you might discern what the will of God is, what's good and pleasing and perfect. Now when we talk about the will of God, we have to be careful about what we're talking about. Because for many of us, when we hear the will of God, we think of maybe God's secret will what we might call his decreative will, his sovereign will, what God has ordained will happen. We think of that, and so when we think about knowing the will of God, we think about, is is this saying that if my mind's renewed, then I will know exactly what's going to happen in my life? Is this a kind of crystal ball, right? a, A few days ago, over at Kingsburg High School, there were a few hundred high school graduates who are all asking all kinds of questions about what their future will look like. Where am I gonna go to college? What am I gonna major in? What's my career going to be? Who am I gonna marry? All of these questions floating around in their heads. The promise of the renewed mind here is not that we would know the will of God in the sense that you would know the answers to those questions. Sorry, high school students. But no, it's that we know the will of God in the sense of God's moral will. It says it there in the text, right? That you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We see that language mirroring the language of verse one, holy and acceptable to God. This is how we know what is holy. If we want to commit ourselves to God in holiness, then we must first have our minds renewed that we might know the the moral will of God, that we might know what is right and what is wrong. What is holy and what is holy, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
A transformed life is a life that is sacrificed to God in pursuit of holiness, but the only way to live in holiness is to have our minds renewed that we might discern what is holy. This renewal of the mind is then vitally important to living this transformed life. But how do we do it? I mean, here in in Romans 12, Paul doesn't give us any indication. He simply says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So how is my mind renewed? How, How can my mind be renewed that I can be transformed, that I can do all of these things? And I think the key to understanding the answer to that question comes in that word transformed. In the Greek, that word is metamorpho. Metamorpho. Brendan will correct me. He'll make fun of me for not pronouncing it right. That's okay. Metamorpho. And metamorpho, that word that's translated transformed, is only something that shows up in two other places in the New Testament. The first instance where that shows up is in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, at the transfiguration of Christ. As Christ goes up on the mountain to to pray, he takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he is metamorpho, he's transformed, transfigured before their eyes. His glory is shown to them. They see him for who he is. And the only other place that that word, that transformed word, is used in the entire New Testament The only other place where it's applied to the believer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where we see this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The only other place that this word transformed is used is here where it tells us that we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and so being transformed. See, transformation is a result of the renewal of the mind, and that renewal of the mind is explained here in 2 Corinthians as the unveiling of the truth. It's explained as the unveiling of the truth. If we jump back a few verses, we see um, with some more clarity what that unveiling is. In verse 14, it says, their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the Old Testament, Uh, When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is the veil taken away. In verse 16 it says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's what the renewal of the mind is. The renewal of the mind is God removing the veil that we might see what? That we might see his glory. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. It is by that beholding of God's glory that our minds are renewed and that we are transformed into the same image, into the image of Christ. But what's also interesting here. In 2 Corinthians is the tense of that statement. With unveiled face, beholding. It's present progressive. 
We are beholding the glory of the Lord, not beheld the glory of the Lord or will behold the glory of the Lord, but beholding. It's present, it's happening now, it's continuing. He continues, and then he says that we are being transformed. Once again, this is a present progressive statement. We are beholding the glory of the Lord, so we are being transformed into the image of God. In the language of Romans 12, we might say it like this. Our minds are being renewed, and our minds were renewed when we first beheld his glory. Let me say that again. Our minds were renewed when we first beheld his glory, and they are being continually renewed as we behold more and more of God's glory. We have had the veil lifted at conversion by the grace of God when we first came to a knowledge of who God is and what he's done, when we first seen the beauties of his mercy and the greatness of his glory, the veil was lifted that we might see him for who he is. And now, As we continue to behold the glory of God, as the veil continues to be lifted, we grow in our knowledge of that glory and our minds are continually renewed by it that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. That's what renews our minds. That's what empowers our faithfulness. It is the beholding of the glory of God. It's a beholding that starts as our eyes are open to it at conversion by a gracious act of the Spirit, and it is a beholding that continues as the sight that was granted in conversion grows clearer by our understanding of his beauty and his power and his majesty and his holiness as that understanding grows and more closely conforms to the unimaginable reality of the brightness of his glory. Culminating in what Dave read this morning, that final sanctification when he appears and we are like him because we see him as he is culminating in our perfect sanctification and Christ-likeness when we truly see God as he is, when we fully behold the depths of his glory. So what is the transformed life? The transformed life is the life of one who is motivated by the extravagant mercies of God to live as a sacrifice to him, pursuing holiness as an act of constant adoring worship. The transformed life is empowered by the renewal of the mind as we are progressively conformed, not to the image of the world, but to the image of Christ through the beholding of his glory. That's what this all comes down to. If we are to live a transformed life, motivated by the mercies of God, sacrificially surrendered to God, then we must be regularly renewed by the glory of God that renews our mind and transforms our life. If we are going to resist conformity to the world and offer our bodies as a holy and acceptable sacrifice, then we must behold the glory of God and we must continue to behold the glory of God more truly, more deeply, more powerfully. If we want to be Christ-like and to be transformed, that's what we have to do.
The Puritan writer John Owen states it this way. He says, a constant view of the glory of God will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. Our souls will be revived by the transforming power with which beholding Christ is always accompanied. This is what transforms us into the likeness of Christ. So let us live in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. And as I read that, I was struck by that language of constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. If it's the glory of God, the glory of Christ that renews our minds, that empowers us to live this transformed life, then what would our lives look like if we genuinely lived them in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ? If we lived them day in and day out, moment to moment, beholding the glory of God? How would that affect your life? Would that change the way that, that you go to work? Would it affect the way you interact with, with coworkers, with your boss, with your employees? Would it affect your, your work ethic, your attitude, the things you say? Students, would it affect you at school? If you walked through life constantly, constantly in view of the glory of God, constantly contemplating the glory of Christ, would that affect the ways you talk to your friends? Would that affect the ways you interact with your teachers, would that affect the way you do your homework? If you had this constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, would it affect the way we parent? Would it affect the patience we have with our kids? We all know the answer, of course it would. Of course it would. If we really, genuinely walk through life, moment to moment, contemplating the glory of God, it would be utterly transformative. It would change every single aspect of who we are. It would change us in every sphere we walk into, in our families, in our, in our jobs, in our schooling, in our friends. Everything would change about us if we constantly contemplated the glory of God, the character of God, who he is, what he's done, the mercies he's shown us. Shown us. If that was constantly at the front of our mind, we would be different people who live different lives. Because those lives would be sacrificed to God if our minds were constantly renewed. But maybe constant is too much, right? Maybe that's too hard. Maybe it's not realistic. But what, what if we just did it daily? What if we took a few minutes every day to consciously, purposefully, intentionally meditate on the glory of God, to contemplate the glory of God. I know that many of you in here, you, you make a habit of, of daily Bible reading, and that's, that's wonderful, that's great, but I also know that when we make a habit of reading the scriptures daily, as we all should, there's a temptation to just kind of get our reading done, to let the, the words wash over us and to not actually take stock of what we've read, to not actually take stock of what we've seen of the glory of God as we've opened his word. So here's the challenge I wanna give us all this week. And I say us all because I'm giving it to myself as much as to you. This week, 
As you walk through your life, as you, as you read scripture, I want you to take time to reflect on the glory of God. Reflect on the glory of God as he shows it to you in the text, in, in the word of God. Reflect on the glory of God as he shows it in his creation. We're going up to camp this week. The glory of God is going to be surrounding us in his creation. But take time this week to reflect on the glory of God, on what he's shown you in his word. Stew on it. Meditate on it. Pray and praise him for it. As you read the word and you see how God has revealed himself and shown more of his character and his glory to you, don't just leave it there, but when you're done, close the Bible and spend time just meditating on the truth that you have just heard, the truth that you've just been shown, the glory that you've just beheld by the mercy and the grace of God. And then, when you go off into your day, don't leave that glory of God on the bedside table along with your Bible. Take it with you. And find times throughout the day to sit and to reflect on the glory that God has shown you. The truth about who he is, about what he's like, about his majesty or his beauty or his love or his mercy or his justice or his wrath or whatever it is, whatever he showed to you, they're all aspects of his glory. And so as you go through your day, find times to think and to reflect and to contemplate that glory as you drive to work, as you students lay on the couch because you don't have school this week, or even better, hike through the woods because you're with us at camp. Parents, moms, find that time to, as you enjoy those, those few brief moments in the shower because that's the only place that your toddler doesn't follow you, take that time, redeem that time, and use it to contemplate the glory of God. Because I think the results of that will be transformative. I think if we are intentional to contemplate God's glory, to behold him for what he is, then it will absolutely transform our lives from one degree of glory to another.